Hey everybody, it's me, Chunk, from the Goonies. Today, Mike and AJ are talking about our possible adventures after we discovered One-Eyed Willie's treasures. It's going to be great. No one is going to uh, to barf, and, and you need to listen. Otherwise, they're going to make me do the truffle shuffle again. Oh, come on. Come on. Good day and welcome to the Outer Twilights podcast, episode eight. Today we're doing Redux, no, not Redux, Rewrite, we'll have to rewrite that, Rewrite, Reboot, or Redux, focusing on the Goonies. Now, the Outer Twilight is a podcast where there are no bad ideas, just ideas that are good enough. Good enough for me! Yeah, 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 yeah. You might want to leave the singing to Cindy Lauper. Okay. You know. Yeah. So if, if you're still here. We swear that's all the singing for today. So I'm your host uh, for now, Michael Sonnenberg. And joining me as always, AJ Craig. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. It's good to see you again. Glad to be doing this. Excited for today's episode. I love, love, love the Goonies. So I had not watched the Goonies in a very long time, and I was pleasantly shocked at how well it holds up. I, I think that the Goonies is one of those quintessential '80s movies. Like, I mean, the soundtrack alone. But you're right; it does have a timeless quality to it that I, I really love. Well, I know we've talked in the past about how uh, even pacing has changed in movies, and, mm. and and I'm sure pacing has changed a lot since the '80s. But pacing seemed relatively okay. Like, the, maybe it was a little bit slower to get into the meat of the of the story, but. I don't think it was ill served by that because it, it worked on character development and, and well, you know, truth be told, it starts with, you know, uh, a faked suicide and a jailbreak and a car chase through town kind of thing. So it's not like nothing's happening, but. Uh, no, I, I do think one of the things I really love about Goonies though, as a movie is that, uh, that I think would need to carry forward in, in, especially in whatever we're going to talk about today um, is that it had such a genuineness to it that as a kid, when I saw it, I felt like these could be me and my friend. This could be me and my friends. Um, what's really funny is I've watched it with several people over the years where it's like, man, I don't remember there being so much bad language in this movie. Uh, and I think what that brings to mind for me, though, is how sanitized movies have become, but also therefore somewhat less realistic. Like one of the funny things about the Goonies is that it, there is swearing, but it doesn't seem like it's out of place. And it doesn't seem like the kids are less genuine because of it. They're, they're definitely, I feel like they come across as mm. more genuine, especially Chunk, who's sort of perpetually frustrated by his own clumsiness and his life and, and things like that. He's a great character and very endearing because he frust- he emotes appropriately. Right. Um, and those group of guys, the, the the group of friends, I should say, the way that they interact with each other doesn't come across as saccharine or overly sweet. It comes across, you know, that those kids, when they hung out, they spent a lot of time ripping on each other. Yeah, I was struck by the authenticness of uh, the relationships with the kids, that it wasn't uh, 
I guess often in movies you get this, well, not necessarily sanitized, but a clean version, uh, clean in the sense that, you know, it cleans up all the, the stuff that you say to your friends, the, the dumb jokes or the little comments, or like you said, ribbing one another and they leave it in there and it's, it works. Well, the whole, the whole scene with mouth, when mouth is speaking Spanish, like the whole, that whole scene is hilarious. Like it's really funny. And I, for me, what makes it funnier is I, I definitely had a friend or two that was like that, like mouth, uh, if not occasionally being mouth myself, like it just that sense of bravado that you're, it's not because mouth is like, got so much self-esteem it's because he's just so oblivious to how what a big jerk he's being mm-hmm. <laughs> just i yeah there's it's a very very endearing movie which why which is why when we look at what how would you continue that story or, or represent it we have to be really careful because it is a it's a a class a certified classic it's a sentimental favorite and it would be very tough to recapture those kinds of performances, I think. Um, so it's, it's important that, you know, when we talk this through, I think that whatever we do, that it, it really, it doesn't necessarily focus on like one eyed Willie and like the main spine of the story, but really focuses on maintaining those characters and their characterization. Um, Okay, yeah. well, let's get to maybe define a little bit of what we're doing. So with Rewrite, Reboot, or Redux, we take something from... No, it, time period doesn't matter. We just happen to be going mining the 80s, which for us is a really rich uh, minefield. But, uh, and, you know, in the past we did it where if we made a movie now, that continued the story. But that's not what we're... Mm-hmm. We're not bound to that. And... So, and total disclosure, we haven't discussed exactly what we want to do. So that might be the first thing that we really have to figure out is when this would take place. So it could be a direct sequel. It could be, you know, if it was 15 years later, or it could be now where you're looking at, uh, what, 35, 37 years later. So, um, so why don't we start with a little bit? I just have a very brief, concise of what the Goonies was just to remind us. Uh, And this is, this is from Wikipedia. So concise. So kids who live in the Goondocks neighborhood of Astoria, Oregon attempt to save their homes from foreclosure. And in doing so, they discover an old treasure map that takes them on an adventure to unearth the long lost fortune of one-eyed Willie, a legendary 17th century pirate. During their adventure, they are chased by a family of criminals who want the treasure for themselves. So concise. So kids, they have a purpose. Yep. They get some adventure and they have a f- external force that's pushing them forward. So our main characters, we got. Right. And so Goon, and this was something I never didn't know till I, I read in this, that Goonies came from that. They lived in Goondocks. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. so Mikey, who's our main character played by Sean Astin, who's yep. phenomenal in this. Uh, Data, yep. Mouth, Chunk are your goonies. And then they're joined by Mikey's older brother, Brand. 
uh, his girl interest, Andy and her friend, Steph. So, and then right. the, the people chasing them are the Fratellis, the criminals who start the whole movie off. And so those are kind of the characters. And so there's mama Fratelli, the two brothers, and then sloth who becomes kind of a, a, a main character. In it. Yeah. So the movie ends with the treasure is found. They go on this great adventure. The treasure is found. Um, they're able to stop the foreclosure with a few jewels that are left over from the stuff that they lost. The cave collapses. We're led to believe, but one eyed Willie ship kind of sails into the cove and they can all see it. And they realize that, okay, they're telling the truth. And really that's where the movie ends with a lot of very open-ended to doesn't say what happens next. And other than they rip up the, contracts that would have seen them move out of the goondocks right yeah because the 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 main threat really i mean the fratellis are a direct threat but the the underlying threat is that there are developers that are going to tear down their homes and put in a golf course um so what's interesting is that and and what a lot of people forget is there's actually quite a bit of class conflict um, mm-hmm. in Goonies, like where it, you know, it's kind of the rich people versus the poor people. Um, there's the, the jerky side character. Can't remember his name now, but you know, he, he makes brand brand something. is trying to Troy. That's right. Yeah. It's in Troy, you know, makes brand go off a cliff on a kid's bike because he, you know, forces him to go super fast. And then like, okay, I'm know. just thinking, of, so is Troy the son of the land developer yes. at the end? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, and then there's also, but there's also when the Goonies are are searching, um, when they're following the tunnel underneath the the lighthouse, they, it's one of the, the Goonies is funny. It's one of those movies where it's like the geography is a little bit sketchy because it's like, well, how far did they go here? But they actually kind of wipe out a country club from screwing around with the pipes, um, and including Troy. But so there is a bit of that, you know, getting back at the upper class. Uh, component that's there um which i think is kind of a neat underlying um you know I, there's very much a uh remember do we remember the past or do we we erase it for the future for the sake yeah. of the future is one of the themes in, in goonies well that's a nice segue because then we have to make a decision that as we're thinking and planning on okay how do we continue the story do we are we, how far into the future are we continuing the future and how much are we changing to, to get what we want? And to be clear, our purpose here is just to have some fun, to play with something that is near and dear and to say what could have been. Now there's been rumors for decades about a sequel to Goonies. A lot of desire I read about like Sean Astin has made references to it. And then, but now we've got a lot of the principles that have, have passed away. Um, most notably Richard Donner, who directed this. Um, John Matuzak, and, who played Sloth, is gone. Yeah, Mama Fratelli is gone. Um, and so, and recently, as a couple of years ago, there's been talks of, of you know, like, even with Richard Donner, if, you know, somebody else connected to it would take up the mantle, but... And I know that Richard Donner was, had been working on scripts for, and there have been stories in that. But. 
The, per- the person who would make the most sense to take over would be Chris Columbus, because that's actually one of Chris Columbus's first screenplays. So it's actually, I think it's before Chris Columbus, Columbus had actually directed anything. He was a protege of John Hughes, but he's also, you know, he directed the first two Harry Potters. Um, he's become a very prolific director since then. So if they were to do a true sequel, I would say that Christopher or Christopher Chris Chris Columbus would be a good candidate to take over. Um, I I have thought about this for a long time. I would really I've wanted a sequel to the Goonies like since I saw the Goonies the first time. I think I would rather not have an actual sequel oh. now. Um. I really don't know how they would make it work well and not make it feel a little bit sad because these characters are so much older now. Um, If they were to do a sequel, my approach would be to, and honestly, I don't know whether they'd be able to pull this off. Um, It would be very effects heavy, but my perspective would be to do a movie where you use the characters as they are now, but they are basically at a reunion or they're reunited for some reason and they are recalling their next adventure. So that though basically there's a, a present day spine to the story, but they're reminiscing and recounting and therefore then either recasting the original roles might come across as a little strange um but there's lots they can do these days or to do facial masking and actually have you know young actors that can pull off the motion capture performance can pull off you know the the facial features and stuff but then you you put sean astin and and all of those characters over so basically the young actors are uncredited right they'd be basically standing in for the original goonies that to me is, is I wouldn't say that's the only way I see it working. I just really struggle with, you know, they're, we're basically the same age as the Goonies, you and I, right? Like the, the same age as the actors that played them. And like our kids are kind of, well, my kids are maybe in the right zone. Your kids are too old for that. So, you know, like it's kind of a little tough to rationalize that all of the Goonies would maybe have kids or offspring that would be, you know, how do you involve them all? I guess is really the problem. Um, what were you thinking in terms of rewrite redux or reboot? Well, so one of the thoughts that I'd had was, okay, so do we just, here's the sequel that we would have wanted to see in 1987 you know, two years after the original Goonies. And so we're just, we're just rewriting history. So, mm-hmm. you know, bringing back the original cast, they're all two years older, you know, like whatever, however many years you want to do it, you know, the relationships are going to be a little bit different, you know, um, you know, so we could go that route, which, you know, in, in what you're saying is ultimately what you could be doing in the sense that, okay, yeah, it takes place now, but they're recalling, you know, mm-hmm. the next adventure that they had. Um, you know, I thought about like even aging them up more than that, where, okay, what would, what if they did a sequel, but it was like five years later. So then it's more of like a young adult. Um, well, that's kind of what's been rolling around in my head too, where you kind of get the sense, 
like in the in the first movie, you, you see them interact with their parents a lot. And you can kind of tell which kids are going to be a lot like their parents and which kids are going to be maybe a little bit different. Um, you know, like I think that Mikey, it seems very logical that he'd be following in his father's footsteps. And I, I like I'm what I'm saying is I like the idea of having a bit more space so that like saying, you know, I'd almost said it, you know, the first one was 85, right? Yeah. So set the second one, like maybe 94, 95, 10 years later. Right. So the kids are now all more established. Maybe Mikey is, you know, working on his degree, but is helping his dad manage the museum. There was a big boost after the discovery of, of one eyed Willie's treasure. It's made uh, sort of, it's made, uh, well, it's Astoria, Oregon, which I, I think they mention it once or twice by name in the, um, in the original movie and the goondocks is a, is a neighborhood of, of Astoria. So like Astoria has become like a major sort of American archeological site, so to speak, right. Where they're looking for other, you know, how did one eyed Willie get there? What's the actual story behind all this excavating further things. Um, it gives it a chance, us a chance to see, where these characters have like how they grew up, right. Sort of revisiting old friends kind of thing. I don't know. Well, yeah. The thing that you can do with that then is you also address the fact that like you have this, this seminal moment, this experience in your life that, that brings them together. And, you know, for the, well, the four main friends, it makes them closer, but it also, you know, draws Brandon and Andy and Steph and stuff like that. But part of the reality is, is that, then people drift away, you know? Mm -hmm. So it could be like the rest of them ended up leaving eventually anyhow, you know? So there's a certain sense and, and it could be like where Mikey is the only one that stayed behind and he helps his dad and, you know, he's working, you know, and you know, major excavation. And I was thinking, you know, part of that excavation is, is that he could find another map from where one eyed Willie was before. Right. And, mm. and I think keeping that one eyed Willie type of thing, but and so there's an opportunity to go on another treasure hunt. And that could be more of a, like, you know, I always think of sequels are being kind of like, kind of like the same story, but like a larger canvas, you know? So, yeah. And I, I like the, I, I think, I mean, one of the most logical reasons to bring them all back together would because you actually have a historical event in the first movie itself, which is the ship coming out of the, you know, coming out of the cave and it, it would be like a, like a huge momentous occasion, right. Historically speaking. So to have them sort of all that, you know, Astoria has invited them back to be a part of the 10th anniversary. What's kind of interesting about that is that there is actually a Goonies like reunion festival every yeah. five or so years in Astoria. Um, so if we were going to, you know, I mean, that's very meta because we're taking something that ended up happening in the present and applying it to a movie that isn't being made in 1995. Ugh, my head hurts. But, um, you know, I think having them all come back for the 10th anniversary um, would be really cool. I mean, because the idea that maybe some of them think it's dumb now or don't really remember what it was like for them and how much adventure it really was and the way it made them feel. 
um, and the way it brought them together. I like in films when there is that sense of the, you know, as we get older, we think fondly about things that have happened, but we don't really necessarily remember the details. We don't remember, you know, it, it sort of feels almost like, uh, uh, like a dream, right? Was it really that cool? Was it really that interesting when I was a part of that? And it would be interesting to see like where brand, I would love to see that brand and Andy got married, for example. Um, and maybe sort of out of the, the mutual experience, but now they're facing a bit of a crisis where they got married sort of right out of high school and <laughs> they're not really, they're, they're not really together together anymore. They're kind of like, Oh, I don't know if this is going to work. And then this adventure moves them together again. Right. And they start remembering why they liked each other in the first place. Of course. Now I'm thinking, what if you made it now? What if you made it now? So like, obviously then you're not doing a kid's movie anymore, right? You're not doing a, a, a young people movie. And like, I'm, I'm thinking of it from a comedy adventure perspective. Like, okay. So like while I was watching this and while I've been thinking about it, I keep coming, kept bumping up against national treasure. How do you make a sequel to Goonies mm. now without it being just like, Oh, they did that national treasure kind of thing, you know, and, and that idea. And I was thinking the thing was national treasure. They were very capable. They were, you know, they, but if you had like middle-aged Mikey, you know, and Sean Astin, who, you know, has thickened a lot since he played Mikey. Um, and, you know, older guys with, you know, bumps and, creaks and bad backs and stuff like that where you know bringing them together you know having to bring the band back together because like a new map has been found or um a new threat to astoria or whatever or even you know the fratelli brothers out and they kidnapped sloth right and to draw to draw the kids back and and i keep thinking of just the irony of, you know, Jeff Cohen who played chunk who, you know, now he's like in really great shape. He's, you know, anything but chunk them still calling him chunk, even though he isn't, um, those kind of things. You well, know? and even him being able to flip the script a bit on mouth because mouth rips on him, like the worst out of all of them. Right. And so even having like, where he and mouth kind of haven't seen each other in a while. Cause chunk eventually just got sick of his crap and, you know, and then to see them now, um, uh, you could have Troy and the Fratelli's team teaming up so that you essentially unify the villainy from the first film and that you could have them forcing the Goonies to go on another adventure by kidnapping one of their kids or, you know, something along that lines. Um, I just, I really struggle with how a sequel wouldn't, wouldn't feel like they're trying just too dang hard. You know what I mean? Like, do you think that's the most viable? Well, well anything that we're dealing with is, is, is fantasy. So, you know, it's right. It, it doesn't really matter 
Um, so like, I think from a, from a practical, you know, you could do that and there's a lot of stuff, but then, yeah, then you ri- you risk really bumping up against something like, uh, like if you're going to do this, bumping up against something like grownups and, you know, out of shape, you know, adults who still act like kids or, um, oh, there's been a number of movies where, yeah, I guess that that has been that has been mined a fair bit. So, so let's go back to the ten year ten year reunion type of thing. And well, and what I like about what I like about the ten year is that it would allow a modern audience to connect. I think like we're both Gen X. That's what all the characters in in uh, Goonies were, right? Gen X tends to be fairly nostalgic. Um it feels as though the world has gotten fairly cynical in present day. And so to maybe reflect that in those characters 10 years later, that they've kind of gotten cynical, they've forgotten how much fun they used to have, how much, because we, we join the Goonies in the movie. We join them sort of mid friendship. They've already been friends for a long time. This is part, you know, they, they they talk about going on other adventures prior. Certainly nothing on the scale of One Eyed Willie, but they have big imaginations and they ha- they know each other really well and they depend on each other. And I think having them grow up where they lose connection somewhat, and then through that reunion and whatever happens on that reunion, it's about remembering why they're friends in the first place and remembering that they had something special and they should have never let it go in the first place. And they will never let it go again. You know, they'll never stop being connected after this adventure. Okay. So Um, here we go. Here's, here's how we do it. So I just have one idea that might work. Okay. What if to honor John Matuzak and his singular performance, what if they are getting together 10 years later because sloth dies? Well, so, so that's what I was just going to say is that, okay. um, of course I was, I was going to frame it in the, you know, present day. So this is kind of c- combining a lot of the different ideas getting together. Cause sloth, yeah, sloth has passed away and, you know, with the health stuff that he has, that makes sense, right? That, yeah. He would, mm-hmm. would have passed away they get back together. Yeah. And they start to reminisce about the last time they were the Goonies together because they've all been, you know, they're all across the country type of thing. And so they talk about their last adventure together and use that technology that, you know, so we're not talking about whether something should be done, just whether we could do it. Yeah. um, And, you know, and it's an adventure that's, you know, three, four, 10 years, you know, maybe, yeah right on the cusp of then finishing high school before that traditional time when everything breaks apart and people go their separate directions. And the last time that they were really the Goonies together. And so then the the actual movie would be the, you know, going back and, you know, they start by telling the story and then it's actually the movie is the adventure that they go on and where it finishes with, you know, that, you know, traditional sentimental, you know, know, Goonies forever type of thing. It's like, you know, the summer after they graduate high school kind of thing. And, you know, it's a fair bit older. Actually, what you could even, you could even go for real schmaltz and have 
the the Fratelli brothers visiting like that towards the end that the Goonies go together to visit Sloth's uh, to visit Sloth at, or, or they're at the cemetery and the brothers are there and at first the Goonies are scared but the brothers basically apologize and say we're we're really sorry about the way we treated you you know and there's a they were very cartoony villains but to flesh them out a little bit you know to say once we lost ma we realized we didn't really have much you know we'd always been on the run we'd always been in trouble and so you know we feel terrible about the way we treated you you know and basically having a like sloth in true sloth form kind of brings everybody together. He's the protector. He's the, the yeah. one that it has the, that childlike, um, that childlike gift that they're now missing. Sloth kept it into his adulthood. They've started to lose it. And so have him be the inspiration. I'm making myself tear up. No, but I, I mean, having, you know, having sloth be the great unifier, you know, at the end of the day where they're, so thankful for having had the life that they had and they decide that they need to rebuild those friendships, reconnect, reestablish what made that time so special for them. Well, and it could be that, you know, because of all the stuff that they did, you know, like, well, they committed murders and theft and threatening children and stuff like that. Maybe they only come to the funeral on a day pass. Yeah, they're still, they're still incarcerated, you know, and you, you could argue that, you know, Chunk, because, you know, at the end of the movie, he has Sloth, it's going to come live with me kind of thing. You know, yeah. he maintains a relationship at least somewhat with them so that they would know about stuff like that. And, you know, you could end the movie with, you know, saying, okay, like, we're never going to be free because we did a lot of bad things. We wanted to apologize and to make it up with you we did kind of have one last thing that we, we took from the ship and it's another map. Oh, that's good. I like that. So have it, you would have it at the beginning. No, no, you no, no, you could do that. You could do that. So like, like if this was happening like later type thing after they've, they've relived Mm -hmm. the past adventure and at the funeral type thing or before the funeral. So then when that's all done, so when, when the sequel is all done and they, they come and, apologize and is it and then as an apology here's the map and then the goonies look and say are we the goonies again one more adventure then i can have and then i can have my overaged guys going on an adventure um to to play into that nostalgia you could almost the feel of it would almost like in my head it would almost be a blend of goonies and city slickers (laughs) <laughs> in terms of the actual, like in terms of the, the, the following part. Right. But yeah, that's cool. Cause I like, I really think one of the best components is that Pacific Northwest feel to it. Yeah. So if they kept it, you know, in Oregon, Washington, even Northern California, like around like big Sur and some of those areas, um, it'd be really cool. I mean, I've actually, I, I was, you can't visit it now, but, uh, about 15, 16 years ago, my wife and I went to Astoria and I have a picture of me doing the truffle shuffle in front of the Goonies house. And, uh, it's, it's, and I saw the prison. We went to Cannon beach where the, 
the the beach and the lighthouse, which was a, a constructed set specifically for the movie. It was never actually there. Um, we saw all those locations and, and that movie just has a very, and also I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. So it has such a visceral connection for me that, you know, when you talk about that, that, that really appeals to me having these historic adventures, you know, the idea that there was, I mean, you could tie it in with like Lewis and Clark, you could tie it in with, you know, you could do a lot of cool things um, with the gold. You could do it with the gold rush. Yeah. Uh, yeah you know, something doesn't... to do with gold rush or something like that. I, I would probably, the one thing I would do story-wise is make sure that whatever the MacGuffin was, was it's kind of like Indiana Jones. It's not necessarily connected to the previous adventure. It's not necessarily one-eyed Willie, you know, maybe one-eyed Willie provided a map. Right. But it wasn't a map to do with one-eyed Willie. It was something a different artifact, a different thing. Yeah, it it could have been another treasure that sort of thing. one-eyed Willie was looking for when the British yes. went after him and he never got a chance to go after it. Yeah. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's part of his treasure. Um, yeah. yeah. Could do that. Definitely. Yeah. Then, yeah. Then you're not just, you know, beating a dead horse to death on, uh, you know, keep going to the same well over and over. Um, mm. no, that works for me. I think it's, un- I think, yeah, I think it's unfortunate. Like I thought about like, in some ways, the easiest thing would do to do would be a straight up reboot where new cast, new, you know, script, keep the generalities the same, but then you run into that problem of why make it in the first place? We already have the first one. Why make another one? Um, and I really doubt they would be able to capture lightning in a bottle like they did in that one. Um, yeah. I mean, you could almost guarantee it would be sanitized. You could guarantee it would be, uh, they would, <laughs> it would be the kind of thing where in a remake, they try to avoid the original to the point where you notice they're trying to avoid the original in the remake. Um, yeah. I don't think a reboot would at all be the way to go. It would have to be either a true sequel with the, all the original cast returning, no exceptions, except for those who've passed, and you honor that. And then, yeah, it's... So the there's potential there. Get Josh Brolin and Sean Astin together. Corey Feldman could use the work. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Fun. Like, I have to admit, like, I remember as a kid that I had such a crush on Martha Plimpton. I don't know what it was. It was just, yeah. She is very cute in that movie. Like I, I remember that too. I remember thinking, wow, they're, you know, it, it, yeah. Well, all the characters have such a great genuine nature. We've said that. And it, it's, well, the performances are so good. There are certain films that really defy messing with. And, and that's what I would be so freaked out of. Like if, if it, all of the cast were involved, at least then I would feel like, okay, they all, if they all sign off on it, if they all think it's a good thing, then it's, it's a tribute as opposed then to, then I'm on board. Then I'm on board. If they aren't all on board and it's kind of like, well, we got, you know, you know, six out of 10 or however many of the actors that they're, you know, trying to get, I would be like, no, sorry, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I don't want to taint the the original with some half arsed 
uh, redo, you know? So, yeah, it's just a Corey yeah. Feldman reboot with, uh, all everyone else being new. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The adventures of mouth. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny because when we were talking about these, uh, this idea of kind of redoing movies, we did back to the, we should have started maybe a little smaller. We should have started with back to the future. Now we're at Goonies and we're taking these iconic films and trying to figure out how to not ruin them, which to be fair, I kind of wish Hollywood would spend at least a little bit of time figuring out how to do that before they went ahead with some of the remakes I've seen. Um, well, 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 yeah. And I think what you're getting at is that, it's like you're bumping up against, uh, yeah, we really shouldn't, you know, it was just, it was great for what it was and allow it to be that. Um, so maybe that's what we need to do is like next month when we do rewrite reboot and redux is come up with something that needs to be rebooted or needs to be redone or needs to be done well that it like, it was a, it was a good idea, but just didn't didn't click um i can think of a few franchises so we'll talk <laughs> so, well, and, and by all means that uh you know for all our listener if you uh if you have an idea and there's something that you want to see us play with and have a little bit of fun with you know leave a comment on it that'd be great um and we'll do our best not to ruin your nostalgia yeah so so andrew's mom whatever you want to see we're good <laughs> right on well thanks mike for for that today that was a lot of fun so now here on the outer twilight we're going to do a top five list and in honor of the fact that uh recently we've been talking about the goonies which was peppered with a lot of really great child actor performances we're going to do top five child actors of the 80s so so got me michael Sonnenberg, and AJ Craig and so the expert AJ Craig and my half-hearted effort at doing a top five list. Um, so we do have a few qualifiers for this. So what kind of, what are your qualifiers on your list? So I, mine are pretty simple. Mine are, are that they, they were under 20 when they did their performances in the eighties, as we know that, Characters can be cast, but be significantly older than they actually were. And so I, I was, I'm sticking with people that were under 20 during the bulk of their performances in the eighties. Um, and yeah, you'll see more what that means eventually, but uh, that's kind of where I'm keeping things at. Um, what about you? What are your qualifiers? Well, my, my qualifier is that the performance happened in the eighties. And to the best of my memory that they were a child when they did it. Um, and, and as opposed to being, okay, these are the top five child actors in the eighties. These are the five child actors of the eighties that I remember the most for whatever reason. And, okay. um, well, shall we alternate? Why don't you go first and then we'll go, you know, five, five. And my, my list actually is in an order this time. That's the other qualifiers that in the past, it's kind of been, you know, put whatever here. I actually prioritize them this time. So mine will go from my fifth favorite to my first favorite. Okay. And so, and these are your favorites, not necessarily, these were the, the best child actors in your opinion. In, in my opinion, they're, they're my favorite childhood actors. Yeah. Okay. Right, well, my number five is, and probably 
the one that I associate with the eighties the most is Corey Feldman. And this was really mm-hmm. hammered home with my rewatch of the Goonies is that he does such a good job as mouth. And there's just a certain charisma that comes from him that, uh, is really good. But I remember there was, um, the one that I keep coming up with, it's probably one of his lesser known ones, gleaming the cube. Um, it was a skateboarding movie. Mm. And I just remember, yeah, that was Corey Feldman, probably Corey Haim too in that, but, uh, He's definitely not on my list, but Corey Feldman was just the one that really stuck with me. What's your number five? Hmm. My number five is Ethan Hawke. Oh. Um, what's interesting, I guess, in this case is that Ethan Hawke, and, and I think I, I like this because I remember these performances, like the, the two big movies that he did that really had a, a impact on me. The first one was Explorers, which was actually his first big screen role. It's a lesser known science fiction movie um, where some kids built a rock, build a, a basically a rickety spaceship more for fun in their backyard, but they actually end up going on a genuine space adventure. It's pretty silly. We saw it for my birthday though, in the theater, the one year. And uh, I just remember really liking him in that role. And then he was also in dead poet society. Um, and oh that movie impacted me in a way that it actually kind of messed me up for a couple days. Like I, I really loved Robin Williams performance, but just the theme and, and, you know, I was writing carpe diem on everything I could find. <laughs> I, I just, yeah. So his performance is in that. I mean, and two dead poet society was a dramatic performance from him. And he was, you could tell he was going to have an amazing career. Um, and he has had an amazing career subsequently as a result. So that's my number five. Okay, my number four, my number four is Macaulay Culkin. Um, he just, for what he was with the Home Alone movie, Home Alone and Home Alone 2, and we'll stop there. Um, those in particular, what he was, again, the charisma, the the attitude, the um, was just really good. And again, when I think of 80s child actors child movies home alone just kind of is that on that mount rushmore for me of um he he is in uncle buck as well as like and it's very much a proto kevin no Um, no isn't that his brother that's his brother no that's him oh wait no that might be kieran yeah that's kieran no it's macaulay no macaulay culkin is in uncle buck for sure he is he's the he's uh his brother is in home alone he's the the kid that pees the bed but Macaulay Culkin is it, one of his first movies was Uncle Buck. And he does that scene where he's asking Uncle Buck all the questions, you know, how many, you know, what's your record for no, most questions in a row? So, yeah, he's he's really great in that. His character's name is Miles, I think. But, yeah, you could even I tell even then, skeptical. even though it's a sporting role. I remain skeptical. Okay, but. well. <laughs> sure, question the expert, whatever. No, I'm just kidding. It's possible yeah. I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. Um, number four for me is Gary Coleman. Um, oh. Gary Coleman, I I love Different Strokes. I watched it all the time. I thought he was awesome. I thought he was funny. He had lots of, he had like movies called The Kid. And uh, there was a couple other ones that he had. He guest starred in, in a lot of different shows. Um, I'm, I mean, 
it's unfortunate what happened to him and that his star faded pretty quickly after the late eighties. Um, what was nice to see is his resurgence in the early two thousands, uh, as he became recognized as a pop culture icon, mm-hmm. uh, and, and someone that contributed to the eighties in a very singular way. I, I, I think it's so tragic. You know, he passed away when he was 42. He had long standing. And the reason his stature was the way it was is because he had kidney issues. Um, but he was a talented actor. He, he was a talented actor. He was funny. He had great timing. Um, and I just, I've always really, really liked Gary Coleman. And so he's my number four. Okay. So my number three and okay, this again, with all, all three of my picks so far, really emphasizing the, as it pertains to the eighties, not anything that they did after that. <laughs> Kirk Cameron. Um, although, and, and, and I'll say that because I think Michael J. Fox was older when he was playing a younger type character. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, Kirk Cameron, growing pains, um, just, TV was really, really important to me in the eighties growing up and something like growing pains with Kirk Cameron. It was just a character that was drawn to and Mm. just seemed to have it together in a goofball kind of way. And, um, you know, and I taught stuff like I kind of wanted a TV one in there for, but a TV guy that related to, and um, I thought about Gary Coleman, but, it opted, and then I thought about Emmanuel Lewis, and then I don't know. But uh, Kirk Cameron, Kirk Cameron was really good on Growing Pains. I think you know he, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, I, I liked him. I liked those kind of moral, the TV shows that had like a moral lesson, right? You know, I lied to my friends, and now I'm paying for it. What do I do? You know, and the parent sits down, and they have the the meaningful heart to heart, and that's you know, Kirk Cameron's character, Mike, was such a. Uh, I think he was Mike Seaver, right? Mike Seaver, he was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was sort of the perpetual making dumb decisions teenager. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, my number three is Anthony Michael Hall from, uh, you may know him from such films as, but he was the original Rusty Griswold in National Lampoon's Vacation. And he's hysterically funny in that. He's in uh, three John Hughes movies, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, and Weird Science. He's the this is kind of a little tidbit that you may not know about him. He's the youngest cast member of all time on SNL um, on Saturday night live. He was a a cast member from 1985 to 86. He was only on for one season, but he's the all time uh, youngest cast member. And he's, and actually though, now that I think about it, Pete Davidson may have beat him, but I'm not sure. Um, But he's, he's, I think what's really cool about him too, though, is he's had a very consistent career. Um, and not only that, he looks vastly different. Like if you see Anthony Michael Hall today, you don't associate him with the geek from 16 Candles or, right. the, you know, that yeah. freaky kid from uh, Weird Science, right? Like with the bra on his head and stuff. He's a, he's actually kind of a bruiser now. Um, and more, most recently, what I've seen him in, he was in Halloween Kills and he was he was the modern day version of one of the kids that get babysat in the original one. And he's very kind of menacing. He has a very menacing, but heroic role in Halloween kills. And so 
I just, I've always appreciated him. He's my favorite character in Breakfast Club, his performance. So, yeah. Good. My number two, and, and the reason will be obvious as soon as I say it, Alyssa Milano. Uh, <laughs> I am not going to disagree with you. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. You know, I was that age. And again, who's the boss? Again, another TV show. Um, and not a character that I relate to, but character that, you know, you have a crush on, you're a teenage boy. Yeah. Alyssa Milano. Well, and she. She started started in quite a few different TV movies too. Like there was one called Collision Course about driving school. There was a couple other ones that were sort of like you know they weren't exactly Disney or Nickelodeon. They were just a little bit older, but they were put on for teenagers basically and had sort of a who's who. Like Kirk Cameron and all those guys would be in those kinds of movies. My number two is Drew Barrymore, um, and I mean she's a true child actress in in the eighties. Um, obviously for ET, uh, she has kind of an interesting career though, in the eighties and that she's in ET, which is a very sweet movie. And she's fantastic for being such a little kid in that movie. Um, but she's also in Firestarter uh, and get Firestarter. I have a real soft spot for it was one of the first Stephen King movies that I saw and it really had an impact on me and I loved the story. And when she goes full Firestarter at the end, it's Awesome. Absolutely awesome. She's in a movie called Cat's Eye as well, which is a yeah. an anthology film. Did you ever see that one? It yeah. was like a her her story was actually kind of the connective story uh between the the vignettes. Um kind of interesting about her too though is that she's also a third generation actor. So her her great uncle Lionel Barrymore, who is the bad guy in It's a Wonderful Life, and his brother John were famous. Uh her dad um, it was John Barrymore's son and his name was John Drew. And then she was, uh, became Drew and was named after her dad. What's really crazy when you think about it is that, um, Drew Barrymore is the same age as us. <laughs> and when you look at her career, she's had a career that would be impressive for someone literally twice her age. Um, and she has done so many awesome different things throughout her life that she's just cool. I mean, if there was anyone kind of an eighties child star, I would just love to hang out with and, and just, and not because, you know, she's Drew Barrymore, but I mean, she just, she would be, she seems like she would be just a blast to hang with, you know? Um, so that's my number two. Okay. My number one, my number one breaks a couple of my own rules, but uh, because it's, Stuff that I know now that informs my decision from from then. But I went with Henry Thomas. So the kid, oh, nice. the kid in E.T. Yeah. And the performance, yeah. I have not seen E.T. in a very long time. And, and it's a great performance in that. But have you ever seen his audition tape? When he aud- no, I don't think I have. Oh, I mean, I must admit, he crossed crossed my mind. It's absolutely phenomenal. Like, you just see. I mean, he is so good in ET. It's just like that alone. Like, forget what he actually did in ET, but that audition tape was Mm. just absolutely incredible. So, for that reason, I put Henry Thomas as my number one. Yeah. Because that was. was Well, he was good in. uh, yeah. Did you ever see Cloak and Dagger with Dabney Coleman? 
It was like, uh, oh yeah, it was Henry Thomas, was the main kid in that, and that was pretty good too. He had a few really good movies, and then he disappeared for a while. And I remember, I can't remember which one it is. There's two movies that I always get confused from the '90s. One is uh, Legends of the Fall, and the other one is A River Runs Through It. And he's in one of those. And I remember seeing his name in the credits and going, the kid from E.T. is old enough to be in a drama like this, right? <laughs> well, but probably I mean, the reason he's... you can't remember, you probably fell asleep during both of them. So <laughs> I actually liked A River Runs Through It. Legends of the Fall was a bit much. But uh, I mean, he has been in lots of stuff since then, too. And he's another one that's pretty unrecognizable because he's he was so young when he did E.T. Like, I just look at my list, like Corey Feldman, Macaulay Culkin, it was their their charisma. Yeah. And yeah. Kirk Cameron relating to the character, Alyssa Milano, you know, the kid crush honor. Henry Thomas was because he was an actor. Yeah. And so that's my list. That's my top five. So what's your number one? My number one is one you've already mentioned. Um, but to me, he is the child actor of the 80s. And that is Corey Feldman. Um, he was in Gremlins, Goonies, Stand By Me, Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter, The Lost Boys, License to Drive, and The Burbs, amongst others. Like, that's kind of his greatest hits all in that decade. Um, and, like, all of them, Gremlins, Goonies, Stand By Me, Lost Boys, th- those are all legit 80s classics. And mm-hmm. he is memorable in every one of them. He was a very, very gifted actor. Um, his association with Corey Haim uh, really made for a lot of movies as well. That's kind of it's an interesting idea to have a, a, a pair of teens be a comedy duo. It's you know sort of like Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and Costello was kind of the the parallel, I guess. There, as weird as that is, um, it's just very tragic what happened to the you know Corey Haim fell into addiction. Corey Feldman. Uh, did try to help him both, you know, Corey Haim rather tragically died because of his, his addiction. Um, and Corey Feldman has had a very, very troubled adulthood. Um, I would love to see him make a comeback. Um, to me, he's the kind of actor that Tarantino would pick to, you know, mm-hmm. be in a film um, who would blow the- to do for him what he did for John Travolta. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I actually, I think, I bet anything Corey Feldman would still have the chops for it um, and be able to do that Tarantino type dialogue really, really well. So, but that's, that's my top five. Uh, yeah. So. Well, there you go. You know, and I picked Corey Feldman, not even doing the research and realizing that, oh yeah, Gremlins, I forgot about that. Oh yeah. Boss Boys. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's like, I might have to rethink my list here, but uh, no, thanks AJ. No problem, man. Thank you. Excellent list. That was a lot of fun. And I hope you enjoyed our top five child actors of the eighties. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for joining us today here on the outer twilight. Please feel free to subscribe to our podcast anywhere. You usually subscribe to your podcast. If you prefer to watch the podcast, you can find us on YouTube on our channel, the outer twilight. Have a great day. 